We're in the book of 1 Peter, and we're in the section that deals with the application of the gospel to our lives in differing relationships. Peter says, based upon the example of Christ in chapter 2, in verse 21 says, For this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And as you follow in his steps, he talks to the wives in the first six verses of chapter 3, and he says, likewise, wives, be submissive to your husbands. Uh, acknowledge the servant leadership of your husband, that he is the, the leader in the home, and you stand beside him, and you respect him, and you walk with him, and unless something happens that's a violation of Scripture or conscience, you, you, you walk with him. And he says, and live in such a way that your, your, your beauty, your adornment is not primarily cofured hair, hairdo, or gold jewelry, or fine clothing, but your adornment would be the inner person of the heart that has the imperishable beauty of a gentle and a quiet spirit, a quiet spirit that was unruffled, trusting the Lord. He says, because this is precious in the sight of God. It's an incredible thing, precious in the sight of God. And so we come to chapter 3, verse 7. And these, these letters were written and then read in a local assembly. And you're sitting there in the local assembly, and the husband has heard these six verses about the wives. And he's probably inside, you know, pumping his fists and yeah. And then it comes to verse 7. It's just one verse, but it's packed with power. In 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter writes to the husbands this statement. He says, likewise, again, likewise points to the example of Christ. As followers of Christ, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. I wish we could get into a time machine in our thinking and go back to the first century and realize that this statement is radical. It is radical. Because this statement puts women and men on equal footing in their spiritual responsibilities and their calling before the Lord. And so he says, likewise husbands, likewise husbands. See, in, in this day... In the first century, if you were a wealthy Roman man, it was not unheard of to have a, a legal wife that gave you your children and then to have on the side a lover or lovers and then even have a third person that we sometimes call a courtesan, somebody who's well-versed in contemporary affairs and then go with you to the parties and to the openings of whatever. So, so you can have all types of people out there. And so when the Bible says you love your wife singular, and you care for her in a self-sacrificial fashion, and you love her and her only. It is a radical statement. Plutarch, who died in 120, if you've studied ancient Greek, a well-known man who was loved and affirmed by the Greco-Roman world, philosopher, considered to be ahead of his time, said this, quote, a wife should not acquire her own friends, but should make her husband's friends her own. The gods, small g, are the first and most significant friends. For this reason, 
It is proper for a wife to recognize only those gods, small g, whom her husband worships and to shut the door to superstitious cults and to strange superstitions. Plutarch. In other words, the husband calls the shots. The husband's in charge. You do what he says in all areas. And, and so this is an absolutely radical statement. So, so I read this, and I just thank God that he's given us a place to stand, no matter what the cultural waves do, whether it's fairly placid or whether it's up and down and the, and the tide is high, the tide is low. We have a place to stand. I don't want to ever, 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 ever get over the glory and the majesty of believing and understanding that God is and God has spoken in his word. So in 2 Peter, for example, chapter 1, the apostle Peter says that I was an eyewitness of the transfiguration of Christ. I was on the holy mount with James and John, and I saw the Lord's clothing turn white, and I saw Moses and Elijah come down from mountain, the, the, the heavens, and they talked about the coming passion of Christ. He said it was glorious, but then he says this. This is, a, this is an amazing statement, verse 19 of chapter 1. And we have something more sure than what he saw. We have the prof prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, the second coming of Christ. He says, we have something better than that experience that, that I saw with my own eyes. We have the prophetic word. He says, understand this. First of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone else's interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's an amazing statement. And I don't want to get over the, the foundational truth of the authority of the Scripture, and it gives us a place to stand. There's a man, Carl, a man named Carl Henry who died a few years ago, one of the leading thinkers in the 20th century in America, and he had 15 theses. This is the first and probably the most important one. And it is, it's, it's, he, was, he was an incredibly brilliant man, so it's kind of have to think real hard on this. But anyway, he says, Revelation is a divinely initiated activity, the Bible. God's free communication by which he alone turns his personal privacy into a deliberate disclosure of his reality. So the revelation is given by God. The Bible is given by God, and it is God disclosing himself to us. It is true truth. It tells us about the character of God and the will of God and the purposes of God. It gives us a place to stand. And I think of Psalm 119 that talks about the authority of the Scripture. Just listen to this. This is Psalm 119. Uh, verses 31 and 32, where the psalmist is just extolling the greatness of God's Word. Listen. He says, I, I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. I cling. Let, them, let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. So, Lord, I, I cling, I run, I pursue. I, I go for it. This is, this is what I do. It gives me a place to stand, a, a place to be the person you've called me to be. So, so when it comes to the family and standing in the midst of a culture that questions everything from 
gender to role relationships to, to whether gender is something that is fluid. We, we have a place to stand. And so one of our core values as a church, for example, is the importance of the family. And this is what it says we adopted this 15, 20 years ago, recognizing that one of the greatest battlefields and proving grounds of our faith in Christ is right within our home. We are committed to strengthening the spiritual lives of families as they seek to become beacons of light for Christ within our community. The importance of the family. The family is vitally important. And, and, and this gives us a place to stand. So Paul, Peter turns to these men and he says, likewise, husbands, live this way. And it's a radical statement. There's a paper that was recently been released by a man who is the head of the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. He's an Indian by heritage, not a Christian, and his name is Tunka Varadarajan. And he writes about a British historian named Tom Holland, who recently wrote a book. And Tom Holland, this British historian, and uh, Mr. Varadarian is in total agreement. The historian from Britain says, I'm not a believer. My dad was. My mom was not. My mom was. I haven't gone there. He says, but as I've studied Roman culture, and he's an expert on Roman culture, and I've studied the movement of the Christian faith in Western society. He says, I've become convinced that the Me Too movement in the United States, he's writing about the Me Too movement that protects women, would never have existed without a Christian foundation, without Christian roots. And this is what he says, and I, thought, I think it's absolutely spot on. He says that this, this movement uh, is inherently Christian. Me Too would not have any impact or would have no resonance if it were not culturally taken for granted that men do not have the right to force themselves on their inferiors. This is a cultural given in the United States that men do not have this right, and it is because of the heritage of the Christian religion in the United States. He's absolutely right. I've been to parts of the world where the pastors say we have to stand up occasionally and say in our church services, do not beat your wives because that's part of their culture. Treat them with dignity. So this radical statement has shaped our culture and has defined us as the people that God has called us to be to a degree. So I want you to see that. This is a radical statement. In fact, he goes on this article and he says in the 1960s there was a sexual revolution and basically we reverted to first century Rome. No responsibility, no accountability, no big deal. And so, in this culture, this culture, in 65 AD, it was taken for granted that if you were a man and you had authority or money, you could force your way on other people. So this is like a mind-boggling statement. And it is glorious. And in this passage, he says three things. I'm going to give you just three points. He says three things about, about this. First of all, he says that as we walk with our wives... We should live with them in the way of understanding or knowledge. We should walk as thinking people who are formed by Scripture and observation. 2 Timothy 3.17 says, as we take the Word and drink it in, they will be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, so, so that, that's what God has called us to do. Uh, again, Psalm 119, listen to verse 129. The following says this, 
He says, your testimonies are wonderful, there, which means spacious or superlative. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It parts understanding to the simple. That'd be me. I open my mouth and I pant because I long for your commandments. Now, I want you to see this as you look at this. That it, he doesn't say that wisdom comes to people who have a cursory reading of the Bible every day. They read John 3, 16 and they hit the door. It says that, that God's wisdom comes to people who, who think biblically who long for and pant for these things, who say, God, shape me by your Scripture, teach me. It's, it's pleading. It's, it's, God, show me yourself. So, so live with your wives in the way of knowledge, knowledge of the Word and knowledge of her, which means you spend time together. You observe that we need to be men who, who observe. Now, I, I put something in the worship guide. It's called uh, the five love languages. This guy by a guy named Gary Chapman. He says there are five love languages, and it's, it's just a good discussion piece. It's not necessarily biblical, but he said the five love languages are uh, uh, words of affirmation, acts of service, touch, quality time, and gifts. It says, he says that most people. They have one of those as their predominant. Let me just speak to the wives for a second. I'll save you time for us guys. It's touch. It's just touch. It just is. So don't, 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 you know. It just is. Right, guys? Yeah, it is. It's touch. So don't, don't spend much time thinking about it. Just, just ask, ask yourselves. How, how can we love each other better? We have a little thing we do in our home. Um, I looked at my wife. Usually when it's safe. And I'll say, grade our marriage one to ten. And uh, she'll give a number that I always think is way too low. And uh, if she says like seven, then my next question is, how do we make it a seven and a half? And that's just, and you've you got to be brave to ask that question, but you, you do ask it. But it's just, it's just, it's just living with each other in, in a way of, of knowledge. You, you let the Scripture shape you, and you observe. Number two, we are to, according to the passage, we're to show honor to our wives. The word honor there means respect. It means to esteem them as precious. Where we show honor. In Proverbs 31, it talks about the godly wife. Proverbs 31, verse 10, an excellent wife who can find, for she's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. It goes on and says that, verse 28, her children rise and call her blessed, and her husband also, and he praises her. Many women, he says, have done excellently, but you surpass them all, close quote. And then the Proverbs writer says, charm is deceitful, and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who Fears the Lord is to be praised. And so you, you show her honor. You say, no, if, she said, if, if, we, if there were city gates, which is the entrance to the city where the elders sat and talked, I would go to the city gate and I would sit among the elders and I would say, listen, I have a, a wonderful wife that's, whose worth is far above jewels. And that, that works. There's a term that was developed or first used in 1386 by a guy named Chaucer. 
And the term is familiarity breeds what? Contempt. What that means is that you know, you, as you live with people, get to know people, whether they're your kids or your spouse or your friends or whatever, at first you go, they're really good, and then you get to know them. You say, well, he's always late. Well, she's not that good a cook. Well, he's, he's not really organized. Well, he's not a great communicator. Well, she's, I mean, and so, and so what happens, you start looking at the, 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 the downside of people, of friends, especially spouses. And so familiarity can breed contempt. Push back against that. Don't go there. Don't, don't go there. See, one of the most precious experiences that I had was with a couple I know regarding this and just spoke volumes to me. I'm, I'm in their home and I'm Sarah and I are talking to the wife and the husband's outside. He's coming in. He comes in. He's disheveled and he can't find this and he can't find that. And, and his wife says with a smile, you are a mess. And she laughs. And then she said under her breath something she did not think I could hear, but I did. I can hear Nat's wings from 500 yards, okay? She said under her breath, but you are my mess. And I thought, yes, that's it. We're on the same team. You're my mess. I love you for it. I love you. So see, familiarity not only breeds contempt, but familiarity breeds familiarity. Those of us who were alive in 1977, 1977 was not a good year in many ways. It was the, it was, uh, the end of the Vietnam War, the aftermath. We had a president, President Carter, who talked about um, malaise. We had the misery index that was the interest rate plus unemployment, and it was high. But in 1977, we had one of the greatest movies ever produced. They won the Academy Award. What movie was that? Rocky. Rocky. Now, you laugh, but I'm serious. I'm, I'm dead on. It was a low-budget movie, uh, but it was a statement that there are heroes in an age that mocked heroism. So I liked Rocky. But also in that, that same year, there was a duet released by this couple. And by the way, they sang in a high school choir together, Barbara Streisand and Neil Diamond. So the, the lower picture is Neil. That's Neil. <laughs> so those of us who are alive in the 70s, we, can't, we can never make fun of fashion that other people have. Because the 70s, that, they, that was the nadir of all fashion. It was just, it bottomed out. It was bad. But they sang a duet, and I really loved it. It was called You Don't Bring Me Flowers. By the way, I, I, think, I think Neil Diamond is the incomparable Neil Diamond. He is today's Kanye West and Justin Timberlake and Justin Bieber and Justin Martyr rolled up into one. He's, he's, in fact, I want to have, I've asked Dean to have a Neil Diamond sing-along one night. Just everybody get together. We can sing, you know, Sweet Caroline and America, which should be the national anthem, by the way. That's a great song. We'll make our beds and say our grace. It's a Christian song. It's America. I'm making a joke about that. Anyway, they did this song. It's entitled, You Don't Bring Me Flowers. And it's got great common grace theology. And I'm quite serious. 
It's, it's a song about the death of love in a relationship. Now, at the end of the song, Neil Diamond says, you don't say you need me. Listen, women, we want to be needed and respected. Ephesians 5.33, respect your husbands. You don't, you don't say you need me. And she says, you don't say, you don't sing me love songs. Ephesians 5.25, women want to be loved and cherished. And then they sing together, you don't bring me flowers anymore. In other words, we don't serve each other. It's just, it's just taken for granted. Push back against that. Winston Churchill, who I dearly love, married to Clementine. When he died, they'd been married for 57 years. Churchill and his bride both came from horrible homes. Both their moms were adulteresses, just horrible women. And so they, they were married. Clementine had very little money. They got married. And by all estimation, they had a sweet marriage. Um, she, she was strong, resilient, opinionated, and knew how to control her husband. She was taller than he was. So a few years after World War II, they're having a dinner party at their house with five other couples, and the story goes that they're having these questions and asking each other questions around the table. You answer, they all took turns answering. And so somebody posed this question, if you could not be who you are, who would you be? And it went around the table and came to Winston Churchill. And this shows you he was brilliant, okay? Nothing else. He said this, if I could not be who I am, I would be... And he paused. Mrs. Churchill's second husband. And what do you call that? Brilliant. Brilliant. It was a good night in the Churchill home that night. I guarantee you. Now, I say that because don't, don't I, I, I'm preaching to myself. Don't lose the wow factor with your friends. With your kids, with your spouse, if you're married, with each other, it's just easy. Familiarity breeds familiarity. So go home today and you see your kid and you say, I just want to thank you. I just, I'm so thankful that somehow we've had a child like you. Thanks for bringing me laughter. Thank you for being creative. Thank you. Tell your spouse, don't lose the wow factor. Don't start singing, you don't bring me flowers anymore. Build each other up. Encourage each other. And in this text, Peter says there, there, there are two reasons and that we're to respect, you respect, respect your wives. You're treated with respect as the weaker vessel. Now, we have believed historically throughout the years that means physically weaker. Obviously, it doesn't mean intellectually weaker. It doesn't mean weaker in their creativity, obviously, or their communication, no doubt about it. Physically weaker. That generally speaking, men are stronger than their wives. And in this culture, men browbeat and subjugated and really physically dominated their wives. And Peter says, don't you dare do that as believers in Jesus. Don't do it. He says, you, you treat her with respect as the weaker vessel. You've been called in biblical masculinity to protect and provide for and defend those who are in positions of, of, of protection. If you want my blood to boil, 
then you talk about somebody abusing children. There's a special place in hell reserved for people who abuse children. Now, this historian named Tom Holland, he's done extensive research in the Middle East, and he's gone places, and he, he, he's written some papers about how ISIS has treated the Yazadis. The Yazadis are, 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 are a group of people in the Middle East, and not Muslims, and not Christians. They're just, they're just this mystical group, but the Muslims hate them, and he's written extensive papers about what, what they do to women and children that they capture who are Yazidi by background, and it is despicable beyond words. It's horrible. It's, 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 it's horrible. So, so our, our blood should boil. You see, we're called to protect and defend. That's why to me, church, I, 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 that, that as long as God gives me life, I will speak out against abortion as a means of birth control and gender selection. And, and no matter what people say, they call it now reproductive rights or whatever, they're not using the word abortion. It, it, it is the taking of life in the womb. That's what it is. And so we're called upon to protect people. And he says they're, they're co-heirs of the grace of God. And second, or first of all, weaker vessels. Secondly, they're co-heirs of the grace of God, which is mind-boggling. He's, he's saying Galatians 3.28, as Paul says, that there's neither male nor female in Christ, slave nor free man, Greek nor barbarian. They're all, it's all equal at the foot of the cross. They are co-heirs with you of the grace of God. Therefore, you treat them with dignity and respect. Not only are they made in the image of God, but they're co-heirs with you. They're believers in the, the blood-bought reality of salvation in Christ. And so you be careful how you treat each other. As you read that, as I do, I, I, I cry out, Lord, by the power of the Spirit, do something in me to make me loving towards my wife, my friends, my church members, my kids. And then thirdly, he says, if you live in the understanding way, you treat her with respect, then you'll have joy in your ordered worship. You see, there's something intrinsically powerful when you're repenting of your sin and seeking Christ. He says, live this way so that your prayers may not be hindered. What does that mean? Here's what I think it means. It means several things. First of all, church, it means that, that when I said I do almost 40 years ago, and my wife, Sarah, said I do, there was something that happened in our hearts and in the mind of God that was covenantal and precious. And it can be broken by desertion or adultery. I believe that. But... but but, but we're, we're a team. We're on the same team. And, and so if, if I'm at odds with my wife, and I get at odds with my wife. Let's be honest. I, I do. You know what? If I'm at odds with my wife and somebody smacks me on the back and says, let's sing some hymns about Jesus. You know what I'm going to say in my heart? Mm-mm. Don't want to. I'm licking my wounds. If that continues on, it is bad. Not, not only that, but, but, but I, I am out of sorts because God has so made me that if I am out of sorts with my wife, I'm out of sorts. That's just the way we are. After the first service, I'm standing in the hall, and this guy comes up to me crying, and he says, 
It could be a number of us, so I'm not betraying a confidence. And he said, we had a fight this morning, and my wife drove a car to church, and I drove a car to church. And she sat on that end of the sanctuary, and sat, I sat over there. He says, you're preaching. I just started crying. I said, I'm just wrong. I said, well, God bless you, brother. He said, I'm going to make it right. Five minutes later, this woman comes up to me. She's crying. And she says, my husband had a fight this morning. I said, yeah, I know. You know? I said, yeah. <laughs> Haven't told you this, but I'm, I'm pretty, I'm, I'm kind of clairvoyant sometimes, you know. And, and let me guess, you drove the car and he drove, yeah. And he sat on this side and saying, yeah, yeah. I said, I talked to him five minutes ago. And she says, we need to make it right. I said, yeah. I said, these things happen. That's why I think Ephesians says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. There's an incredible psychological logic to that. Don't let sin continue to do, to do, to do, to do. Okay. It brings great moral energy. If you live with your wife in the way of knowledge and you treat her with respect and you treat her, she's precious, and she is, it brings moral energy and the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. Now, we should pursue excellence in our work. And it, it, let's, let's say that you're a violin maker. Let's be honest. You're a violin maker and you make a violin. As you make the violin, I promise you, probably no one's going to pay $10 million for your violin like they do a Stradivarius. They're just not going to. It's just going to be kind of a, 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 you know, it's just going to be a violin. If you, if you are an artist and you're painting uh, landscapes and, and, and you're, you're pretty good, probably no one's going to make a, build a multi-million dollar building in the middle of Paris and put your one huge painting there and only one huge painting by a guy named Monet. Not going to happen. Probably. I don't want to show you short, but it's probably not. So there are certain places that we say, well, listen, I don't want to be mediocre as a, as, as a husband or a dad or a granddad. I'll be mediocre as an athlete. Even though during my prime, I was, I was, I was not that bad. I'll be mediocre, but I don't want to be mediocre as a husband or a dad or a granddad. I, I don't. So I, I, want to, I want to push. I, I want to push. And part of pushing is, is, is loving the Scripture and letting the Scripture shape our lives. In, in Mark chapter 8, there is a statement about Jesus healing a blind man. It's a great story. It says that they brought to him a blind man, Mark 8, 22, and they begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see men, but they are like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Now, I read that and I go, there's so many times in our lives that we just can't see clearly. We don't, we don't get it. We just and so we need to run to Christ and say, Lord, you call me to do this, but I need your power. I need the Holy Spirit to see clearly and to act rightly. And that comes when we do that. So I, I would just ask you to do that. To just whatever area, of, whether you're married or not married, you're pursuing Christ, say, Lord, I, I see, but I need to see more clearly. 
So husbands, live with your wives in the way of knowledge and treat her with respect so that you can really worship. You can really taste the goodness of the Lord. So here's just one application. One. In your homes, dads, husbands, um, we're getting ready to have a glorious season called Advent. So Advent is something we should be doing all the time. But um, get your family together, five minutes, ten minutes a day, even with small children, and just read two or three verses out of the Gospels or take, take one of the letters, go, go through First Peter, and, and just have sentence prayers. Just pray. Just pray. Just pray. And it's, it's nothing fancy, but as you pray, say, Lord, we are asking you by the power of the Holy Spirit to shape our family. That's what we're asking. We're, we're inviting Jesus into our lives. We need it. And you say, well, that's just, I know that's basic, but brothers and sisters, just, just do it. We had family, we called it family devotions when our kids were growing up, and it was never anything that I would want to have taped and shown in church. It was usually, pay attention, Sarah, let's go. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just kidding. But it was just, it was just, but I, I've always felt like we're inviting the presence of Jesus into our home. It's a statement. It's a statement. So, one application. Don't lose the wow factor. Just rejoice. There's a dear man sitting here today, and I was talking to him recently. I said, how many years have you been married? And he said, he said, I, he said 60. I said, 60? 60, yeah. And when I'm with him, he's never lost the wow factor. I thought, that's great. I don't want to lose the wow factor. All right? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the, 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 the clear teaching of the Bible. Thank you that, that you have disclosed your heart to us in the Scripture. That the God of all creation who has no beginning and who has no end, who is God in triune majesty, has given us a book with truth that is truth. And so, so Lord, I, I pray that as we read this book of 1 Peter written to a scattered church, getting ready to go into a time of persecution, this, is this intensely practical section that you would deal with us. I pray that our homes would ring with the reality of Christ, and I pray that we would love each other tenderly, and I pray that as we do that in a culture that can't find the bottom of the pool, they're just being tossed to and fro by the waves, that I, I pray that we would be able to share the reality of Christ with, with those around us. So guide us, I pray, and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen.